a life of faith. So we've been in this series all summer long, looking at what some call the Hall of Fame of Faith from Hebrews 11. And as we've looked at people like Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, and then Isaac last week, I've been encouraged. And here's what encourages me about these people's lives, their lives of faith. They didn't get everything right all the time. They made mistakes from time to time. They didn't always believe right away what God was telling them. And even when they knew and they understood exactly what God wanted, as we saw last week with Isaac, they still didn't always get on board. Andy shared with us last week about Isaac. It was something like 70 years of his life that he wasn't on board with what God wanted from him in terms of the blessing of his kids. And finally, when he comes to what he thinks is the end of his life, he's finally starting to get on the same page as God. So to be a person of faith, to live a a life of faith, doesn't mean you have to get it right all the time. We're going to see that same idea play out again today in Jacob's life. Jacob is another one-liner from Hebrews chapter 11. You don't even have to turn there because I'm going to read the passage to you and then we're going to jump elsewhere. But listen to what he says. Hebrews 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. That's it. Seems like kind of a strange reason to be included. He worshiped, leaning on top of his staff. He blessed his grandsons, and and that's it. But I have kind of a confession to make. When Ryan was figuring out the teaching schedule for this summer, and he said, hey, would you be able to take a week? And I said, sure, but can I have the week on Jacob? And I knew what it said because what Jacob actually says in chapter 48 of Genesis, that's where you can turn if you want to. That's where we're going to start. What he says when he blesses his grandsons has become very personally meaningful in my own life. So Genesis 48, where this event happens, the blessing of Joseph's sons, let me set the stage for you. Jacob and his entire family, his sons, his, their wives, their children, the grandchildren, they have all moved to Egypt to survive a famine that was going on. It was a huge famine. And the reason they're able to do that is because Joseph is there. He's second in command in Egypt underneath Pharaoh. He has provided, kept grain back. There, there's enough there for anybody that needs it. And Joseph is there because his brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt years before. Jacob has thought that Joseph has been dead. Some year, I mean, he mourned him everything because the brothers said he was mauled by an animal. They didn't say, well, we sold him into slavery. So that's why Joseph is there, and that's why they are provided for. And so in chapters 46 and 47 of Genesis, Jacob's family moves to Egypt, and there's a joyful reunion. And now Jacob is at the end of his life, and Joseph brings his sons to his father Jacob for their blessing. And that's chapter 48 starts. Jacob is reminiscing. He's looking back over the course of his life. He's remembering what God has done. And I believe that the blessing that he gives to his grandsons specifically, he's stating what he really ultimately believes to be true about God. Look with me at verse 15 and 16 of chapter 48. Jacob blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all of my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, may he bless the lads 
and may my name live on in them and the names of my, of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the earth. So Jacob kind of immediately identifies three characteristics, three ways that he has understood God. First one is that he says, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. What he's doing here with this identification is, is recognizing this is a personal God. Yahweh, the God he's blessing them and asking to bring a blessing on them, is a personal God. The idea of walking with God goes all the way back to Genesis, when God would come into the garden in the cool of the day, and he would walk with Adam and Eve. The gods of the Egyptians, the gods, all the gods around them at this time, they are not a personal God. They do not walk with their people. They do not care that much about their people. They just want their people to serve them. So personal God. Second thing he identifies is this idea that God has been his shepherd all of his life to this day. This, by the way, is the very first place recorded in scripture where God is identified as a shepherd. You might think it was David because he's really well known, Psalm 23, but no, it was Jacob. Because Jacob was a shepherd himself. And what he is recognizing is that as I was to the sheep, so God is to me, protecting me, providing me for me throughout my life, feeding me throughout my life. And then the third thing he identifies is the, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now that refers to specifically a wrestling match that Jacob has with an angel that we're going to get to eventually. We're going to look at that today. But there's a lot packed into these verses. And so what we're going to do is flash back through Jacob's life and see if we can understand a little better what's he getting at. How did he come to understand God in this way as a shepherd who has walked with him, as an angel who has redeemed him? Jacob, by the way, is one of the most confusing characters in the book of Genesis. He is a schemer. He is a deceiver. He is a bridge burner. He runs away. Most of the time, a good amount of the time, his life is anything but an example of living by faith. Yet he is the one, he is the man from whom God brought forth the 12 tribes of Israel. God changes his name, we'll see that this morning too, and brings forth the 12 tribes from him. Jacob's life covers some 24 chapters, a lot of stuff. Obviously, we're not going to cover it all in detail today. I'm going to summarize certain stories for you, tell you what, we're, what chapter we're in along the way. But there's a lot. And as I was trying to get a handle on the scope of Jacob's life, I went back and reviewed Brian's messages from when we went through the book of Genesis years ago, and they are fantastic. And this is where a lot of the ideas that I'm sharing started for me. And I would encourage you, over this next week, take your own time and read through the stories of Jacob's life. Starting in chapter 25, which is where we're going to go next. Starting in chapter 25 is where he is born. He dies in chapter 49. I think you'll be enthralled with how God works despite Jacob's scheming and his deceitfulness. But Genesis 25, verse 21. Andy actually read this last week because it also encompasses Isaac and Rebekah. And we were looking at Isaac's story last week. So look there. It says, verse 21, Isaac prayed. To the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, they were wrestling. And she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And now the first came forth red, 
all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. He's still wrestling. So his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. So Jacob comes out of the womb, grasping his brother's heel, still wrestling with him. So he's called Jacob, which means one who grasps the heel. Now, a little bit later, Esau would kind of redefine that as one who supplants or one who takes the place of, because Jacob does take the place of Esau. In fact, we were just told, God told Rebekah that the older would serve the younger, that Jacob would be the more powerful one, the, more, the one that would get served. And that's exactly how things play out, right? As the boys grow up, Andy covered this last week, Jacob steals Esau's birthright. Esau's coming in from the field. He's starving. He's hungry. He says, I'm about to die. Would you give me some of that really good smelling food that you've got cooking there, that stew? And Jacob says, well, sure. I'll give, you a, I'll give you a bowl of stew. But you have to give me your birthright. See, he's scheming already. So Jake, or Esau says, well, sure. What, what good is my birthright when I, if I'm about to die? And so Jacob gives him the stew, he eats it, he goes out, and we're told that at the end of that story that Esau despises his birthright. And so a little bit later, chapter 27 of Genesis, we talked about this last week as well. Jacob deceives his father, Isaac, who is old. He thinks he's about to die. He's blind, and he goes in and he steals the blessing of the firstborn that was meant for Esau. He puts goatskins onto his arms, the hair of goatskins, and onto his legs because Esau is a hairy man, right? He was described as that, but Jacob is a smooth man. He doesn't have a lot of hair on his arms and legs, so he puts these goatskins on, and he goes in to Isaac, and Isaac says, come close to me, and he feels the goat hair and thinks of Esau, and so he gives him the blessing of the firstborn that was meant for Esau. And it's at this point when Esau says, surely he is named correctly. He is named Jacob, one who supplants, one who takes the place of. And then he swears that he's going to kill Jacob. And so Jacob flees. He runs away at the urging of his mother, Rebekah. He goes to his uncle's house, Laban, to find a wife. And while he's on his way, He has a dream, and God appears to him, and he blesses him. This is Genesis 28. Let's look at this dream. Verse 12. He had a dream. Jacob had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord God stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. And your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So in chapter 48, when Jacob is looking back over his life, this is one of the things that he's remembering. 
God promised him that he would give him the land. He promised him that his descendants would multiply like the dust of the earth to the west and the east and the north and the south. And God promises that he himself will be with Jacob. Wherever he goes, he will keep him and bring him back to this land. And he won't leave him until he does what he has promised. This is where this idea of God being a shepherd and keeping him and protecting him and being with him begins to start in Jacob's life. Basically, what's happening here is God is renewing the same covenant that he made, the same promise he made to Abraham that he made to Isaac. He is now making it personally to Jacob. He's saying, I will be the God who walks with you and shepherds you all the days of your life. Go on with our story. Jacob's on his way to Laban's house to find a wife. Many of you know, possibly know what happens. This is Genesis 29 and 30, by the way. I'm going to summarize it for you. He works for seven years for a woman named Rachel to be his wife. But on the wedding day, Laban deceives him and gives him Leah as a wife. And so he works another seven years for Rachel. And now he has two wives. And those wives begin to bear him many children. Jacob is ready to head back home, but Laban talks him into staying a little while longer because Laban has recognized that the blessing of God is upon him because of Jacob's presence. So God uses this extra time to bless Jacob some more, to strengthen his herds, to give him more flocks. And then Jacob has another dream, Genesis 31, 11 through 13. And God tells him this, basically, that he has seen all that Laban is doing. And that he is taking care of Jacob, and it's time to leave. It's time to return to the land of your birth. So Jacob leaves. But I want you to notice one specific verse in Genesis 33, or 31. Genesis 31, verse 20. Let's say, and Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. Why does Jacob deceive? Why not just tell him, time for me to go? I mean, it's clear if you were to read the stories, there's not this great relationship between Jacob and Laban. We already know, like he deceived him and gave him Leah first and all of that. But God has just told him to go. So why not just go to Laban and say, hey, my God has appeared to me. He said, it's time for me to go home. I'm leaving. I think because Jacob is a deceiver. This is the way he operates. He wants to do it his own way. God has blessed him. God has promised several times to be with him. Yet Jacob continues to try to do it his own way. So Jacob flees. Laban pursues. Laban catches up to him. But we're told that God deals with Laban in his own way. And now as we come to chapter 32 of Genesis, Jacob has to face his brother Esau. And remember, Esau has vowed to kill Jacob the last time they were together. It's been something like 20 years since that happened. Has time healed that wound? Well, Jacob sends messengers to Esau. They come back and tell him, Esau is on his way. He's got 400 men with him. <laughs> so the question is, is Jacob going to trust God or not? Well, Look at what he says. Verse 7 of chapter 32. Then Jacob was greatly afraid 
and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. So we know he's afraid. I think I would be afraid too. He divides his people into two camps. Now the irony of this is, just at the beginning of the chapter, of chapter 32, he names the place Mahanaim, because the angels of God had met him there. And he said, this place is two camps. It's our camp and God's camp. But now he has divided his own camp into two camps, thinking, well, if I, you know, if, if, if Laban, or if, too many names, if Esau attacks, if he attacks one camp, one other will escape. It's like he's forgotten about God's camp completely. So is he going to trust? Well, he prays. Verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered." So Jacob prays, he recognizes who God is, who he has claimed to be, all that God has given him, the blessing that has come upon him, and he asks for deliverance. And then he does what he's always done. He schemes. Verses 14 and 15. He prepares a present to send to Esau. Listen to this present. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels in their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. This is a huge present. Maybe if I give him enough, he won't come and attack us. Maybe I can buy him off. So he sends the present to Esau. He sends the rest of his family and his possessions and his wives and children across the Jabbok River and he is left alone. And an angel comes and wrestles with him until daybreak. That's Genesis 32, 24 through 30. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh so that the socket was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then the angel said, let me go. The man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And so Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. So what's this wrestling match all about? Well, Hebrews 12, 4 tells us that the man wrestling with Jacob is a, not Hebrews, Hosea 12, 4 tells us that the man wrestling with Jacob is an angel. Possibly most scholars think the angel of the Lord, which may be the pre-incarnate Christ, God himself, which is what Jacob thinks, because he asks for a blessing. 
But if it's God in human form, why can't he prevail against Jacob? I think it's a lesson for us to learn here about ourselves, about humanity. All of his life, Jacob has wrestled with God, wrestled with men, came out of the womb grasping, wrestled within the womb. God has done everything in his power to show his faithfulness to Jacob. Multiple dreams, multiple promises, tremendous amounts of blessing. But God has not prevailed on Jacob to get him to trust him. Because Jacob won't let him. He won't surrender. He has to do things his own way. Even in the wrestling match. And finally, God has no other choice but to totally disable Jacob. Touches his hip. Dislocates it. And at this point, Jacob, I think, realizes who he's wrestling with. He's like, man, the sun's about to come up. Esau's on his way with 400 men. I can't walk, much less fight. I'm all alone. The angel tries to leave. Jacob won't let him. Clings to him. Because I think he realizes, man, this is my only hope. It's either cling or die. He asked for a blessing. The angel asked Jacob his name, and he says, Jacob. And on this time period, when Jacob lived, if you gave up your name that way, it was like saying, I surrender. I give up. So finally, Jacob surrenders. And what does God do? Does he punish him? Does he say, well, it's about time. No, it says that he blesses him. This is what God has wanted to do, has been doing in some form for the last 20 years of Jacob's life. But for God to do that, Jacob has to surrender. And Jacob, God changes his name at this point and says, you'll no longer be called Jacob. You're going to be called Israel. Now, there's a lot of debate in scholars amongst what the word Israel means. Some say it means God prevails. Others say it means you have prevailed. But what I think it's kind of both. What, what happens in the text right afterwards, right? It says, that, uh, it says that his name change says that God, Jacob has striven with God and with men and has prevailed. Meaning all of his life, Jacob has wrestled with God. Wrestled with men. But for the first time in his life, Jacob has actually surrendered. So he has won. God has prevailed. So he has prevailed. Jesus talked about this same concept in the New Testament when he says... If you want to keep your life, then you're going to lose it. If you try to hold on to it, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, if you surrender, then you will find it. You will prevail. The paradox of faith, of a life of faith, is that we must die to ourselves to live. We must surrender in order to prevail. So Jacob finally trusts God. Maybe. Next morning, right after this, right? Genesis 33. Esau comes to meet him, right? There's this joyful reunion. Esau runs to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. There's weeping. It's very similar to the story Jesus tells of the prodigal son coming home and the father running to meet him. And Esau meets all of Jacob's family. And then he calls Jacob on his scheme. And he says, what's all this company that I've met? What's all this stuff that you sent? And Jacob kind of admits, he says, well, I was hoping to find favor in your sight. And Esau says, you keep it. I have plenty. Who would have thought in their wildest dreams that this is the way Esau would greet him? What Jacob says in this interaction 
It says two things that kind of indicate that he's starting to understand the blessing of God, the protecting, shepherding hand of God in his experience. First is in verse 10 of chapter 33. When Esau refuses the gift, Jacob says, no, 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 you keep it because I see your face as one sees the face of God and you have received me favorably. Now, he just said something very similar to this right at the end of the wrestling match. It wasn't, you know, minutes ago, right? He says, he names the place Peniel, and he says, I have seen, the face, seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. He had experienced the power of God in that moment. He had wrestled with God and experienced God prevailing in his life. He had seen God face to face. And now when he looks into Esau's face, he says he sees the face of God, possibly, I think, meaning that he sees what God has done in Esau's heart, that he's no longer a man driven on revenge, set out to kill him. He's a brother who loves him. He has received him favorably. The second thing that he says is in verse 11. Again, when Esau refuses the gift in verse 9, he says, you keep it because I have plenty. And that's a good translation of the word plenty. But when Jacob then responds again and says, no, 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 please take the gift you have, because I have plenty, really the word there should be translated all in verse 11. My Bible has a footnote and says literally what he says is all, meaning what he's saying is, please take this gift because I think I'm beginning to understand the blessing of God. You have plenty, but I have it all. Because there's nothing that God cannot do. So it seems like Jacob is finally getting it. But is he really? Listen to what he does next. Verse 30, still in chapter 33. Esau wants to escort him and his family back with his 400 men as protection. It would have been a huge blessing to have that. Jacob says, no, no, no. We don't want to drive the livestock really hard. We don't want them to be exhausted. We need to travel at our own pace. And so you go on ahead. And Esau says, well, let me leave some men with you. They will travel at your pace. Go as slow as you want. Jacob says, no. You go ahead. I'll meet you in Seir. <laughs> it's like he doesn't quite trust Esau. Maybe he's not for real, right? And you're going to see in a second, Jacob isn't trusting God either. Esau leaves Jacob doesn't go to Seir. He goes to Succoth, which is the opposite direction. And maybe he's just kind of taking the scenic route, going at his own pace. No, verse 17, it says Jacob built a house in Succoth. And eventually he moves to Shechem, even further away. God had told him, go back to your homeland I'm going to give it to you. But Jacob's still living in fear, still doing it his own way. He's still lying. He told Jesus, uh, Esau he would meet him in Seir. It's interesting. God changed his name just before this story. But throughout this story, he's still referred to as Jacob. And possibly that's because that's how everybody knows him. They haven't made the transition yet. But possibly it's also because the writer is trying to say he's still living and acting like Jacob. When God changed Abram's name to Abraham, he referred to him as Abraham 100% of the time after that. But from the moment God changes Jacob's name to Israel, he would continue to be called Jacob 45 times. 
And over the course of his life, he would only be called Israel 23 times. Because that's the way he continued to live. Driven by his fears, doing it his own way. Perhaps what we see in Jacob's life is that surrender, it's never just a one-time thing. It's a daily thing. At least it needed to be for Jacob. It seems that over and over again, almost every day, Jacob needed to surrender again. He didn't always. But it's what he should have done. And the amazing reality is through all of that, God is still faithful. God is still full of grace. He continues to shepherd Jacob, to bless him, to provide for him, to protect him. And he would eventually get Jacob to Bethel where he wants him. But along the way, Jacob and those with him would have to live with the consequences of his wrong actions, of his refusal at times to surrender. And that's what Jacob is realizing, I think, in chapter 48, if you want to turn back there, when he's blessing his sons and his grandsons. In chapter 48, the beginning in verse 3, here's what he says to Joseph. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. He's remembering the promise God made to him in chapter 28 of Genesis that we looked at. And then God actually confirmed it again to him in chapter 35 of Genesis. We didn't have time to look at that story. But Jacob has changed what was said a little bit here in 48. What God said in those passages is, if I kind of summarize it and combine it for you, was be fruitful and multiply. You shall be a nation. You shall inherit the land. But when Jacob repeats it here, he adds a personal pronoun in for God. God Almighty appeared to him and said, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make you a company of peoples. I will give you this land. Because as Jacob is looking back over his life, with all of his scheming and deceitfulness and bridge burning and all of that, he realizes there's no way he could have ever bring about what he has, what has happened in his life. It's just the grace of God. Jacob schemed, he plotted, he deceived, he tried to make it happen his own way. And what he's realizing now is he, God didn't say, Jacob, you go out and make this happen. You become fruitful. What God really said is, Jacob, I'm going to make this happen. I will make you fruitful and bless you and make you a nation. And I will give you this land. Because no matter what Jacob did, he lived the majority of his life as a schemer and a deceiver, as a man driven to do life his own way. Yet still, God was shepherding him, fulfilling his promises, because that's what the God of Jacob is like. He's a God of grace. Which is incredibly encouraging to me because I can be so much like Jacob at times. There are times when I trust God really well. But there are other times when I just am bent on doing it my own way. And I'm not much of a deceiver. I'm pretty honest, but I still try to scheme, make things work out the way I want them to. I still want to look good. I want to save face. I want a little bit of control over my life, of the things in my life. I don't like to give up control over my money. I feel more secure when I have a certain amount in the bank. And I regularly find myself these days, most mornings, surrendering 
control. One of the things that I pray very regularly is this, Lord, I welcome everything coming to me this day, giving up my desire for security, approval, and control, and surrendering to you and your will. Maybe that's the application point for you today. Just to pray that prayer on a regular basis. Lord, I welcome everything coming to me this day. Giving up my desire for security and approval and control and surrendering to you and your will. Because maybe there's an area of your life that you're struggling with releasing control. Control. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe God is asking you to trust him and break off a relationship, or maybe he's asking you to trust him and move forward in a relationship. Maybe it's your future, your desires, your dreams, your goals. I don't know what that is. But whatever it is, we can trust God because he is a God of grace and he wants to bless us. He is your shepherd. He is your heavenly father who cares for you. And many years later, a descendant of Jacob would come to earth. And I think if he were to speak to Jacob in his time, he would say this. He would say, don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up your treasures in the heavens where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good and clear and generous, then your whole body would be full of light. But if your eye is bad and dark and stingy, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth or mammon or stuff. And for this reason, I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink or for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add even a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed such as one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So do not worry then saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek, and they run after, and they pursue all these things. But you have a heavenly Father who knows that you need all these things. So seek first and quickly pursue and eagerly run after his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things 
will be added unto you. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In a sense, to us, I think he would say, don't be like Jacob. Don't try to serve two masters. It's just not possible. Stop trying to always do it your own way. Trust God. Store up your treasures in the heavens. Be generous. Seek the kingdom of God first. Don't worry. And here's why you can do that. Because you have a heavenly father. You have a heavenly father who's not just pictured as providing seed for the birds to find. He's pictured as actively being involved in the feeding of the birds as if he's sitting on a park bench tossing the seed out himself. You have a heavenly father who is actively clothing the grass of the field in such a way that not even Solomon in all his glory could compare. Will he not much more clothe you? He would say, don't be like the Gentiles who eagerly run after all this stuff. They run after it because the gods they serve are capricious. They don't walk with them. The gods they serve, they always had to know, what do we need to do next to please this God, to make sure that he might take care of us? But you, you have a heavenly father who knows your needs. So seek first his kingdom, not your own kingdom. Simplest way to do this is to remind yourself that you have a God who has been your shepherd all of your life to this day. I pray some form of this prayer every morning as well. God, you have been my shepherd all of my life to this day. You are a good father who is caring for me. I don't have to be in control. Recently, I've actually taken to praying it several times a day. I just set an alarm in my phone with this prayer at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., 4 p.m. And when it goes off, I just, again, take a moment and I say, God, you have been my shepherd all of my life to this day. You are a good father who is caring for me. I don't have to be in control. Perhaps, this is an application for you. The reason I do that is because it reminds me who God is, who I am. It orients me toward his kingdom and not my own. It's an opportunity to surrender again to my good, good Father, perhaps that's an application for you to incorporate this into your day. Because the life of faith means surrendering daily to a good father who is our shepherd. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, We just recognize that you are a good father. We thank you for Jacob's life and not necessarily the way he lived his life, but we thank you for the example of your faithfulness in his life to continue to pursue him, to care for him, to shepherd him all of his life, to provide for him, to protect him, to bless him. 
And God, I pray that you would help us to recognize that you are worth surrendering to, that you are a good father. And that whatever the situation is, and I think throughout our lives, different things take the place where we want to do it on our own. So God, would you remind us through your Holy Spirit that we can surrender to you and we can trust you because you care for us. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.